This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Majid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Hi, everyone. You can say hi back. Hi. <laughs> I have prepared some words, but before I read what I've written, I would like to talk a little bit about some things that have been going through my head since arriving here on Wednesday. Um, it started when... John read the dedication list and I heard the name Thich Nhat Hanh. And that kind of shocked me, not because, I mean, he's, he's in his 80s. I had heard that he had been, been in poor health. But he has done some things and written some things that have special meaning to me and are very much in line with, with what I plan to talk about. Um, much of what I am going to speak about religion is negative. And to have someone who has made the Dharma a motivation for social change due to loving kindness rather than by anger is very inspiring to me, especially since I'm a politically minded person and it's easy for me to get angry about what's going on in the world or in this country. Um, also, when I was a, a pretty new Zen practitioner, it was right after the 9-11 attacks and I was hanging out with a bunch of fellow Zen people and somebody uh, read his poem, Call Me By My True Names. Um, and there's part of it that says something like, I am a 12-year-old Vietnamese girl who threw herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am also that, that sea pirate. That brought me right where I needed to be after having previously been quite angry about what happened. And I whip that poem out from time to time when I need to be reminded and break through my delusion. Also, just, I am so overwhelmed by what I've been a part of, this sangha, this, this hybrid mishmash of multiple sanghas that come together and form one big beautiful sangha, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. It's been a few years now that I've been coming here and uh, those of us who come from Philadelphia and join the Ordinary Mind Zendo, I think I can speak for the others that we feel totally welcomed and, and embraced and 
couple of times a year we become one big, uh, one big sangha. And for me to go through the Denkai ceremony with all of you is, is just an honor beyond words and to share it with uh, the other people going through similar ceremonies today has been quite wonderful. Um, listening to the Jukai talks, we just went through Jukai at Zen Center of Philadelphia and had a wonderful, wonderful uh, ceremony there. And hearing the talks this weekend, the three uh, Jukai recipients really speaking from the heart uh, is an indication of the tone set by Barry and Claire, and really it has to be a Sangha-wide ethic that it's okay to share your feelings, to be vulnerable, and I've been very moved. So during the, the ceremony that we went through this morning, uh, while most of the group was sitting, we went up and did bows at altars that were uh, in, in several locations uh, throughout Garrison. And um, one of them upstairs, there were pictures of uh, parents and the uh, Jukai group uh, bowed in, in recognition and in, in the direction of their parents. And I thought I ought to make some mention of mine. Um, especially hearing the, the Jukai talks where it's obvious that so many people have quite a lot of pain associated with their parents, with their upbringing. I'm so damn lucky that uh, my mom and dad, Helene and Ernie Kohler, just just nice people, good people, good parents, good husband and wife to each other. So when, uh, when I read Barry talking about one's secret practice and trying to figure out what really brings us here to do this practice, I didn't have an obvious story about abusive or missing or unskillful parents. I was just one of those lucky people and you can be jealous if you want. They're just nice, normal people. <laughs> um, my dad died two and a half years ago at the age of 92. Uh, had a good life until he started fading at the end the last few years. Um, my mom's 81 and is in the early stage of Alzheimer's disease. I thought about inviting her to this, but her memory isn't great. And even though she's supportive of what I do as a Buddhist, I think it might have freaked her out if she had actually seen what we do. When I, not the most dramatic coming out story, I'm a straight guy, but when I came out as a Buddhist to my parents, uh, hey mom, I'm a Buddhist. And, and they were actually quite supportive. 
Um, my mom did a little reading about Buddhism to try to understand it, and she got back to me and said, oh, I, I get it now. Christians do what's right because of heaven and hell. Buddhists do what's right because of karma and rebirth. And Jews do what's right because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> okay. Uh, they, they attended a little talk and book signing by, by a, a Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Lama Surya Das. He's written a lot of books you may have seen. And, uh, and he started his talk by saying... I'm Jewish on my parents' side. <laughs> my mom liked that. And so I too am uh, Jewish on my parents' side. Uh, well, sort of anyway. I'll, I'll explain that in the, the part of the talk that I wrote prior to getting here. So this is about prayer and my life as a religious person. Barry makes a compelling argument that Zen is a religious practice. I am deeply committed and maybe even in love with this religious practice and embark on a role as a religious teacher. Religious teacher? This notion is actually quite preposterous. At least it would have seemed so for most of my life. The issues of religion and prayer have given me much to work with as part of my practice so I thought I would share some reflections on my journey with you as I have found a home with Pat and the Sangha at the Zen Center of Philadelphia. And Pat, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I grew up as a secular Jew in a liberal household. I never believed in God and never heard talk of it at home. I first heard about God from a friend when I was seven. <laughs> I didn't know that was the laugh line in this talk. <laughs> it never made sense to me. My parents didn't need religion to teach me right from wrong. My father took me on civil rights and anti-Vietnam war marches when I was a kid. Why did some people need religion to teach them right from wrong? I have always had negative feelings about religion. If my religion is right, then yours must be wrong, right? <clears throat> Growing up, I heard the news about wars in the Middle East, Northern Ireland, and Kashmir, all in the name of religion. My father grew up in Berlin and escaped the Nazis in 1938, just after the Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Being Jewish had gotten very dangerous, despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact, that the Berlin Jewish community was largely secular and assimilated. He arrived in New York just in the nick of time on December 31st, 1938. I was aware of my minority status as a Jew, at least from a cultural and ethnic standpoint, 
but I was a minority within that minority as we never practiced the religion or went to synagogue. We celebrated Christmas, which was appalling to some of my Jewish friends, but it was about family and friends, food and presents. It was never about Christ. Some groups of people were trying to get organized prayer, which it had been banned in the schools, reinstated. My Jewish friends and I were alarmed as it seemed like an attempt to marginalize us, and it felt even more threatening, if not a hostile act to me. When I met Noreen in college, our religious backgrounds matched up well. She was raised Catholic, but never believed anything she was taught in church. (laughs) She says she doesn't have the God gene, (laughs) and I always figured that I don't either. On top of that, she has always been angry at the church about the so-called pelvic issues. (laughs) All the policies related to treatment of women, sexuality, reproductive rights, etc. Once we were invited to a barbecue by a co-worker of hers. We soon realized we were among a group of Christian fundamentalists with some people speaking in tongues. People spoke negatively about non-believers not realizing there were such people, meaning us, in their midst. We felt uncomfortable and very out of place. But in retrospect, we were also kind of smug. We were far too smart and sensible to be taken in by such nonsense. In 1997, I read an interview with the Dalai Lama in Mother Jones magazine. It was the first time I had read the words of a religious leader that I did not feel was total bullshit. I became curious about Buddhism and started to read. How did I find out that Buddhists meditate? It was the ads for cushions in Tricycle magazine. (laughs) I went to my first Buddhist meeting in September of 1998 at the Introducing Buddhism series at the Philadelphia Buddhist Association. The name sounded like it must be a big group. I hoped to sneak in unobtrusively to avoid cultists and proselytizers. I wanted to be like Elton John, the young man in the 22nd row. But I ended up as one of about 20 people sitting in a circle. I felt surprisingly comfortable, kept attending lectures, sittings, and retreats, and learned to meditate. Why was I, this guy who was never a spiritual seeker, but an atheist, a non-believer, a skeptic, drawn to Buddhism? What was my secret practice? It has never been obvious to me. It probably had to do with the onset of middle age, my daughter Rachel becoming a teenager, a brutally difficult time for us, as she had problems with depression, drugs, and defiance. Seeing my parents' age and awareness of my own mortality. But I came to the practice with no obvious agenda or thoughts of extinguishing suffering. Within a few months after starting my meditation practice, Noreen told me I had become more patient. This was good news. I hadn't thought of myself as impatient, but if I was now a better husband, that was great. In my first exposure to Zen practice, the robes, the bowing, the chanting all freaked me out. 
but I quickly took to it, at least when it came to the forms and the ideas. But I couldn't help but wonder if all these people in robes weren't enlightened, while my mind wandered with thoughts big and small, asking myself, why, why was I doing this, waiting for the bell to ring, monkey mind in full force, and singing pop songs from the 60s and 70s in my head. I must be the only one with such self-doubt, I thought. But I still love the practice. Of course, I soon came to realize that the people with robes and shaved heads were just like me. But in a way, it feels kind of familiar here in the ordinary mind tradition. Barry says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. My father often said, don't kick a winning horse in the ass. Noreen has remained supportive, though preferring to define Buddhism as a philosophy and practice rather than a religion. To her, a religion is by definition theistic. And if I am now practicing a religion, does that separate us? Uh, Today she's with her father celebrating his 80th birthday. So happy birthday, Tony. In my long career as a hospital social worker, I have often asked patients and families how they cope with a serious illness. Answers such as religion, faith, and prayer were the most common responses. I was trying to help people, but had no training or skill in spiritual matters. In 2007, I entered the year-long Buddhist chaplaincy training program at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care hoping to learn to integrate my spiritual life with my professional practice. In the first class, one of the teachers said, if a patient wants to pray, read or recite a prayer, very routine stuff. Well, it wasn't routine to me. To me, prayer had very negative connotations. Pray to whom? A God I did not believe in? We were Buddhists, for Christ's sake. I always viewed prayer as a weapon. Attempts to reinstate prayer in the schools were, in my mind, wielded as a weapon against non-believers and by Christians against Jews. Even under God and the Pledge of Allegiance made me uncomfortable. Anyway, my stomach was in knots. I thought I would explode. What if we had no familiarity or comfort level with Judeo-Christian prayer? The teacher did not seem happy that I brought this up. I never thought I would have to contend with this prayer nonsense at a Buddhist education program. How naive of me. I did my clinical hours at the pastoral care department at the hospital where I work. It seemed that most of the patients who were predominantly Christian assumed that I was too. Who would send up a Buddhist chaplain anyway? On a couple of occasions, when asked by Christian patients about my religion... I replied, Jewish. Was I being dishonest? My hope was that they would not have expectations that I would be an expert on Christian prayer, but would not be viewed negatively by being associated with a weird Eastern religion. Fortunately, I am rarely asked my religion. My first night on duty, I introduced myself to a patient's family member as Bob from Pastoral Care. Turning to her husband, she said, 
Honey, the pastor's here. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I felt like an imposter. But I wanted to be helpful. The Dharma teaches us that there is no separation. But here I am focusing on my own discomfort, looking at us as self and other. Not helpful. Can I get over my discomfort about prayer and turn it into an opportunity for healing rather than separation? When asked by patients and their families to recite prayers, I've tried various responses. When I tried prayers that sounded too much like meta or loving kindness chants, some people seemed dissatisfied. I have tried to formulate my own prayer specific to the situation. That usually works. I keep the 23rd Psalm on a card in my pocket and have recited it often. I focus on trying to be helpful, but I still feel some degree of discomfort feeling the lack of authenticity. When I have been alone with a comatose patient, I have silently chanted the Enmei Juku Kanan Gil. I still get angry about what some people do in the name of religion, such as fighting against marriage equality, or access to contraception, or even waging wars. But I see familiarity more than ever. To me, the bottom line is, does your religious practice promote compassion? Or more importantly, does my religious practice promote compassion? I believe it does. Having a practice of my own has made me more understanding of the beliefs of others. So now I'm wondering if my discomfort with prayer was just about prayer itself. Was it about doubt about my standing as a spiritual caregiver? People saw something in me because I was a chaplain that I did not see in myself. If someone needs a spiritual figure at that moment in time, why not me? Who else may have been more helpful? A priest? A minister? A rabbi? A roshi? What makes for a spiritual encounter? Create a sacred space. Be motivated by compassion. Provide present moment attention. Recognize the reality of no separation. I believe I can do this. So what has changed now that I am a religious man? Is Buddhism so different from other religions? True, one need not believe in God to be a Buddhist. But what about other matters of faith such as rebirth? This is controversial among Buddhist scholars, but most Buddhists that I know are skeptics about this. There is controversy about what it means to be a member of a religion. Are the terrorist acts committed by Al-Qaeda or ISIS proof that Islam is a violent religion, or are they proof that the perpetrators are not true Muslims? And what about Nazis, skinheads, and the KKK? Are they, in fact, Christians? We have recently learned of Buddhist monks in Myanmar committing genocidal acts against Muslims. I don't feel that I can get off the hook by saying that these individuals are not Buddhists. 
Rather, we, myself included, must all be vigilant against the notion that self-identification as a Buddhist means that we are uniquely and inherently good. I must maintain a strong practice of self-awareness and always return to the importance of compassion. I have never regretted siding with the little guy, with the oppressed, or with lovers of peace, and have always regretted when I have strayed from these values. Noreen and I still do not worship a deity. She has been a great mother, even during, or especially during, the most difficult of times. She works to serve our community and supports progressive and environmental causes. Certainly she's a bodhisattva. I don't want to freak her out by saying she has the God gene. But maybe I do have the God gene after all, whatever that means. When I read Dogen, I sense what others may feel when they read the Bible, Koran, or whatever uh, scripture they see as the authentic word of God. I need to be careful not to deify him. What challenges lie ahead for me as I am asked to be more of a spiritual leader in my Sangha? One of the nice things about this is not to have to be a closet Buddhist, but the expectations are greater. No one goes to the hospital to see a chaplain, but they do come to the Zen Center in part because of the spiritual teachers. So how in the world did I wind up here? Not only did I never intend to become a Buddhist teacher, I never intended to become a Buddhist, period. But as another of my idols, John Lennon said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. I realize that there is a lot more that I don't know than what I do know. I hope that this realization will make me a better teacher as I continue to practice and learn together with my Sangha members and students.